All right, welcome on in to another episode of the Jazz Talk Podcast, part of the Wasatch Podcast Network. Today we have a very special episode. We will be talking about the greatest all-time jazz players, and we'll be joined by two very special guests. My little sister, uh, Gabby, will be joining us in the last segment. And my little brother, Preston, is joining us for the whole episode. Welcome on in, Preston. Hey, well, uh, never mind. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if you remember, Preston has joined on this podcast before. Um, he was a great help in the jazz season preview. Um, in this episode, though, we're going to be talking about teams uh, and players that have played throughout the whole 40-ish year history of the Utah Jazz. Um, we'll talk a little bit about their move from New Orleans to Utah. We'll talk jazz history. Um, we'll throw in some fun fa- facts in there, some fun stories. Um, but we're just going to go by position. We'll talk the greatest players that they've had, and we'll throw in little an- anecdotes as we go along. You ready for that, Preston? Oh, yeah. Hopefully uh, we won't get too tongue-tied this yeah. whole episode. Yeah. All right, so we will start off with the centers. Um, first is probably the most iconic of the centers for the Jazz is Mark Eaton. Um, Rudy Gobert may eventually take over that mantle, but for now it's Mark Eaton. And for the simple fact, the guy is seven foot four, and he was a blocking machine. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know, Preston, that he was drafted in the fourth round of the NBA draft? That's so weird to me. They only have two dra- two rounds now in the draft. Yeah, it's just in- it's weird. So, if he had been in the modern NBA, he probably goes undrafted and never gets a chance in the NBA. Yeah. But he eventually did get a chance, and he made it. He made it work for himself. Uh, Frank Layden was the coach at that time and really believed in the guy. Um, and eventually Mark set the uh, NBA single season record for blocks in a game. Mm-hmm. Um, 5.6 blocks per game, which is just ridiculous. The game was a little different then, but that's still just a huge amount. Yeah, that, that is true. The game was more um, centered, centered around the basket. But still, to get five and five and a half blocks per game. I think was the closest to him at five, and then the rest are four and a half and below. I think. Yeah, yeah. In most seasons, you don't see guys go over three. Yeah. Um, for his career, like I said, most seasons you don't see guys go over three. For his career, he averaged three and a half blocks per game for his entire career. That's insane. Now he didn't bring much on the offensive end. Every now and then, he'd get an offensive board, tip it in. But his main impact was on the defensive end. And he was so good at it that he was named uh, Defensive Player of the Year twice. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, So we have a lot of names to cover in this, so we'll kind of move a little faster. Um, We won't spend too much time on each guy. But the next guy we'll talk about is the center now, Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert was a 27th pick in his draft. Um, The Jazz actually traded up to get him. With the Nuggets. Um, with the Nuggets. Again. <laughs> is our our favorite draft time uh, trade partner. Oh, yeah. Donovan <laughs> Mitchell, Rudy Gobert. Yeah, and, and Rudy, you know, his first couple years in the league, he was just a tall, skinny guy that couldn't catch the ball. Yeah, I remember getting, what year was that? What year was that? Uh, 2013. 2013. It was like 2K14. He was a rated like a 45 or something. Oh, yeah. And it was like, 
Well, time to trade this guy. Who is this guy? You know, there have, there have been a lot of guys like Rudy in the league before where they're drafted just because they're huge, and they flame out in a year or two. Yeah. But Rudy, Rudy's different. You know, he's got an incredible work ethic. Um, he's got some really good assistant coaches around him, like Alex Jensen, that's taken the time to help him develop his game, learn where to stand on the court, um, and be most effective. Um, I think his biggest gain has been on the offensive end. Yeah. He, he used to clog up the offense just as much as he clogged up for the defense. Mm-hmm. And now he creates tons of space, and he can get himself open. And he, every now and then, he can get, make his own shot, create mm-hmm. his own shot. Pretty cool how much his offense has grown. Yeah. Um, for his career, Rudy is actually averaging a double-double at this point, which is crazy because he hasn't been in the league that long. In his first couple of years, he just didn't play at all. Yeah. Um, but he's averaging a double-double, and he's shooting over 63% from the field for his career. That's. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. She goes to show you he's a s- smart player. Yeah. yeah. He, knows, he knows where he can make his shots. Mm-hmm. And, which includes a lot of dunks. Yeah. And just like Mark Eaton, he has been a two-time defensive player of the year. I think he could get plenty more than that. Yeah. He's very, very good. Now, he, he has to deal with this new phenomena that's voter fatigue. I don't know if you've heard about this, but basically they don't want guys winning the same award over and over again. So he'll have a bit of a challenge. But I think if he gets back into form, there's nobody better than him on the defensive end in the league. Yeah. All right, so next guy I want to talk about is probably the greatest center of all time. And I'm being extremely sarcastic here. Greg Ostertag. Double zero. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, even though, you know, Greg was tall, out of shape, didn't look like a basketball player, had a flat top haircut, and had the same off-in-the-distance look that Nikola Jokic has. He was very important to the team when they made it to the finals. Yeah. Um, he helped protect the rim. He averaged a, a 1.8 blocks for his whole entire career. Um, and like I said, he was the starting center both those years they they that they went to the finals. Yeah, he was that big body that they needed. Yeah. Now, I don't, I'm not going to spend too much time on Greg Ostertag, but even though he wasn't amazing, he does deserve to be um, talked about when it comes to great jazz centers. Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> next guy we'll talk about is probably one of the biggest fan favorites that, that the jazz have ever had in Mehmet Okur. Yeah, definitely. He's, Everybody knows who Mehmet Okur is. Even newer fans know who he is. Everybody talks very highly of him. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's still with the organization. He helps them out here and there. Um, even though he won a title with a different team, you know, he found a home with Utah, and he's there for a long time until eventually injuries overtook his career. Yeah. I remember watching 2008. 2009 with him and Carlos Boozer and Darren Williams. That was a fun, fun time. Oh, yeah. So that's when I first really started watching basketball. Mm-hmm. I got to see those guys go to the Western Conference Finals. I 
think they got swept. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't have quite enough to push them over, but yeah, that was, that was a good team. Yeah, that was fun. Um, but Mehmet brought something different that no other center has brought to the Jazz, and that was floor spacing. All the rest of them have been right next to the basket, um, big bruising guys or big shot blockers. But Mehmet, for his uh, career at the Jazz, shot 38% from the three-point line. Um, you put him in the NBA now, that's still an amazing uh, three-point shooting center. Yeah, he's he'd be a top three-point shooting center for sure. Yeah. And as a guy that you know was kind of buried on the bench with the Pistons and was just a big fan favorite in Utah, but wasn't looked at as a star, he did make an all-star game in his career um, with the Jazz. Um, not not tons of all-stars for the Jazz, but... Yeah, you know, they, they struggle with the fact that they have to play in Salt Lake. Oh. Um, you know, we know Utah is a great place, but people from New York, Florida, California... They don't know much about Utah. They don't think it's that great. And no nightlife. Yeah. That's what they say. You know, and that's the reason they don't get put on national TV very often. Yeah. Which is really embarrassing for the NBA experts when they get to the playoffs and they know nothing about this team. Yeah. They just think they're going to be a pushover team. Yeah. And they <clears throat> make the other teams worry. Yeah. And then the last center that we want to talk about is Big Al. Um, Al unfortunately was with the team when Darren had left, Carlos had left. They were kind of a middling team, maybe make the playoffs type team. Um, and eventually they got they let him go um, so that they could start their rebuild. But in his time, he did help keep the Jazz relevant. Um, yeah. They didn't just fall to the bottom of the league. Yeah, they they were right near forty wins. Most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for his time with the Jazz, Al averaged 18.5 points and 9.5 rebounds, um, which is almost a 20, 20, or 2010 player. Yeah. Um, yeah, not quite what he did with, um, was it Minnesota? Mm-hmm. But he's also had injuries and he's getting a little older. Yeah. So still pretty good. Yeah. But you know, that's so that's our, our centers. Um, but now we're going to go ahead and move on into probably the most uh, most popular position for the Jazz, which is kind of a, ironic because they don't have a great power forward right now. But the power forward is a very famous position for the Jazz. And I think it's only fitting to start with one of the greatest power forwards to ever play basketball in Carl Malone. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you were old enough to ever watch him play on TV. No. Um, you know, I, I ended up catching the tail end of his career when he was just a jump shooter. Mm-hmm. But even as just a jump shooter, he was still averaging over 25 points a game, pulling down nine or ten boards. Um, had a great uh, effect on the court. He actually led the <clears throat> league in points scored. For the whole decade in the 90s. Yeah, and eventually was the second uh, highest scorer of all time. Yeah. Just right behind Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's insane. Yeah. 36,000 plus points. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of points to score. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, Carl was also a 14-time All-Star, four-time All-Defense, which his defense doesn't get talked about very much, but he was a good defender. Won the MVP two times and was part of Team USA. Um, what I thought was interesting about his MVPs is it came late in his career. Yep. Not, not during his prime years. Yeah, uh, both him and John Stockton, they did most of their their stuff when they were 34 plus, which is crazy in the NBA because yeah. most of the time when a guy gets to 34, teams are afraid to touch them. Yeah, and they were <clears> the stars of the team. Yeah. For a long time. But I have just a, a couple, just a couple really fun stories to actually tell about Carl Malone. Um, when he was first drafted, um, the Jazz really didn't know much about him. Scouting was not the same back then. You didn't have tons of guys going all over the nation, all over Europe, looking at these guys. So right before the draft, Frank Layden, who was the GM at the time, and the coach, um, Scott Layden, his son, and Dave Checkets, who was president of the Jazz, met in a cabin in the woods and watched film. And Frank Layden saw about two minutes of Carl Malone and said, Who is this monster? He is faster than everybody else. He's bigger than everybody else. He can jump higher than everybody else. They're like, they're saying, There's no way he makes it to us in the draft. Because I don't have it listed here, but do you remember? What position he was drafted at? Was it 13? Yeah, I think it was 13. He was not supposed to fall that far. But he had a few little issues at Louisiana Tech. Plus, he played at Louisiana Tech, which wasn't a big school. So he eventually fell to the Jazz. Well, in Utah, they they celebrate Pioneer Day. It's July 24th. It's to celebrate the Pioneers coming over the mountains and settling Utah. And it's a lot like July 4th, they have a big parade. Well, the Jazz used to be in this big parade, and Carl Malone's birthday is July 24th. So when he was a rookie, and they brought him over, he thought they threw they had thrown this <laughs> massive parade for him. That yeah. is hilarious. Which fits for Carl, because he's a very talkative guy, and he has a big ego. He's, yeah. you know, he's a good guy, but he's very proud of himself. Yes, he is. He's got his nice... Cigar company now. Yeah. Going. But one thing, um, I know you'll agree with this, one thing you can say about Carl is nobody was ever going to outwork him. Yep. He put on muscle his whole career. Got stronger and faster. Yeah. The guy was never out of shape. Always just huge and toned and ready to play. Whether that be working out in the gym or working out, cutting logs and cutting down trees. Dragging them up hills. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the guy was a workaholic and really he worked himself from being a NBA starter to being one of the greatest of all time. Oh, yeah. So with that, we'll go ahead and move into a guy that Carl played with. That was actually his backup, played six-man for most of the years that Carl Malone was with the team before they got Hornacek and moved into their championship phase. But that's Thurl Bailey. Um, Thurl Bailey is the best example of a great six-man big man. Um, You know, he was 6'11", but he could space the floor. He rebounded pretty well. Um, Averaged 14 points a game in his time with the Jazz. Um... 
And when they absolutely needed him to, he could come in and start. Which, with Carl Malone there, wasn't that often. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> I don't really have tons and tons of memories of Thurl Bailey, but I've heard lots and lots about him. Yeah. But one of my favorite things about Thurl Bailey is, you know, he's not a Utah guy, and most guys, when they come to Utah to play with the Jazz... It's just a stop, they move on to the next team, <clears throat> or they retire and they move away. Well, Thurl Bailey lives in Salt Lake, and he's been one of the um, TV announcers for the Jazz for decades. Yeah. I remember watching him on TV announce games, you know, when I was a little kid, back when Carl Malone was still playing. Yeah, I've seen, seen him on TV a few times. Yeah. yeah so with that... Um, there's one more older power forward that I want to talk about who only played with the Jazz for two years, but I think he, it's worth mentioning just because he was with the team before they came over from New Orleans, and that's Truck Robinson. Um, I know you won't really know much about him, but in his two years with the Jazz, averaged 23 points, 15 rebounds, and he was six foot seven, 220 pounds. So that's a guy the size of... Tabo Cephalosha, averaging 15 boards a game and dominating in the paint. Um, I really don't know much about the guy. Um, most of his, his prime was not with the Jazz. He was just there towards the end of his career. But I felt the need to mention him in this podcast just because of the big effect he had um, while he was with them. Yeah, that would have been... Was that before? Or after the New Orleans move? Uh, he was with the New Orleans Jazz. Yeah. So he would have played with Pete Maravich for a couple of years. But it was before the move over to Utah. Which, another little funny side story is, do you know that after they moved to Utah, they didn't play all of their game, all of their home games in Utah? Really? In the 1983 season, they weren't sure that they were going to be popular enough to stay in Utah. So they played their home games in Las Vegas. Huh. So you'd go to play the Utah Jazz, but you'd fly into Vegas to play over there. That's interesting. Yeah. And then the very next year, they made it to the conference finals. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the Jazz have a, have a funny history with actually being able to stay in Utah. Um, so it's really cool that they're firmly established there and that the Millers have done the job that they have. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. So we'll go ahead and talk about more of the modern power forwards that the Jazz have had um, after the Carl Malone era. Um, first is Carlos Boozer. Um, Boozer that they signed um, from the Cavaliers. And this is during a time where the Jazz decided to try and do free agency like the Lakers would, like the Knicks would, where they throw a ton of money at a big star and they didn't get huge stars, but they got, you know, these B-level guys that ended up being pretty special players for them, like Carlos Boozer and Mehmet Okur. But Carlos Boozer, in his time with the Jazz, averaged 19 points, 10.5 rebounds for the team. Yeah, helped lead them to the conference finals. Yeah, in 2008. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was when I started really watching basketball so I saw him a lot mm -hmm. what do you remember about his game because his was different than the rest of these guys I do remember 
him extending out to the mid-range mm-hmm. quite a bit. But he also did back down a bit. But he's... Um, I feel like he was more of, like, not down low in the post. But kind of, like, mid-range to high post sort of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, and he was one of the very few guys um, that I've seen with the Jazz and knew how to take care or take advantage of mismatches. Um, If he got a really big, like, seven-foot center that could move his feet on him, he'd back him out to about 18 feet and then drive right past him because he was faster. But then they'd try to put a a faster guy on him because he was pretty athletic, and he'd just back him down on the post. He had some good moves from there. He could fade away. He could also get the hook shot up. Um, good pick and roll partner with Darren Williams at the time. Sweet balding head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then after, well, they played together for a little bit, but after Carlos Boozer was the center, or the power forward for the Jazz, Paul Millsap took over those responsibilities. Now, Paul Millsap, the best years of his career were after he left the Jazz. He went over to the Atlanta Hawks and had more um, opportunities on the offense. But in his time with the Jazz, you know, he averaged 12 points, 7 rebounds, um, and he's made four All-Star games in his career. Um, but Paul Millsap is a is just an interesting player. Um, what do you remember about Paul with the Jazz and throughout the rest of his career? I know he's... I think he's very underrated. He has yeah. been his whole career, I think. But he has a lot of moves in the post. Mm-hmm. He, it seemed like he l- learned a lot of stuff from Big Al, mm-hmm. footwork-wise. But then he was plenty quick enough to play kind of a small forward almost position. Yeah. And he learned how to shoot. So he was... he. He turned into a pretty dangerous player. Yeah. You know, and he's one of these guys that he had, he had some good physical tools. I mean, he was 6'7", mm-hmm. but, you know, he he wasn't the highest jumper. He wasn't the fastest runner, any of this type of stuff. Wasn't the greatest athlete. Um, but one thing I really remember about Paul Millsap, and this isn't with the Jazz, but this is later, but when he was with the Hawks, he was a LeBron James stopper. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't think that a six foot seven. 250 pound power forward could stop LeBron James but he would get all the way out to the three point range and keep up with the guy yeah I remember was it the playoffs they met mm-hmm. that he slowed him down a lot and that's prime LeBron James that's Miami Heat LeBron James yeah when he was probably like 500 pounds of pure muscle yeah <laughs> <laughs> So then we'll move to the last guy. Um, The Jazz um, had to trade this guy away this offseason due to the fact that he conflicts with playing style with Rudy Gobert and the Jazz are kind of moving into a new era. Um, But Derek Favors, um, D. Faves, uh, one of the, you know, he's one of those guys that when you think Jazz DNA, he fits the bill perfectly. Yeah, everybody in Utah loved him. Yeah. You know, it was cool seeing, you know, we got Derek Favors in a trade with the Nets during his rookie season. That was the Derek Williams trade. Um, 
Yeah, everybody thought we lost that trade. Oh, yeah. But, you know, we watched him go from a 19-year-old kid to a father of three. Um, just a great guy. Off the court, just an amazing person. But then you look on the court. He was a good player. Um, unfortunately, he ran into the fact that the Jazz already had centers. Mm-hmm. Um, he had to play with Ennis Cantor. Uh, before that, Al Jefferson, and then Rudy Gobert. Um, and he just wasn't ever able to be the main guy down low that he, you know, should have been with the Jazz. Um, yeah, that and a few injuries set him set him back a little bit. Yeah, yeah, he has had injury problems, but, you know, just a great uh, hard worker, constantly came back from those injuries and did everything he could just to help the team. Yeah, I remember, can't remember exactly which season it was, but he averaged almost 17 points and 9 rebounds one year. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit more of a focus. Yep. And if he was the full focus, I think he could have averaged that for multiple seasons. Yeah, I I always thought his full potential was 20 and 10, and he wasn't that far off from it for a couple seasons there. Yeah. Um. With that, we'll go ahead and move on into the small forwards. Um, first guy I want to talk about is a guy that um, many in Utah may not be too happy with still. Um, but he was a great part of the Jazz while he's with them, and that's Gordon Hayward. Um, I remember he made his decision to leave the Jazz on July 4th um, to go to the Celtics. And that whole thing got a little messed up and... You know, it was a little ugly. So, unfortunately, there's still some Jazz fans that are not too happy with the guy. Um, but, you know, I wish him the best with the Celtics. But let's get into what he did while he was with the Jazz. Um, just at six foot eight, the guy was a full playmaker. Like, he could do just about anything on the court. Averaged about 16 points, four boards, and four assists in his seven years with the Jazz. Made the All-Star team one time and was a big part of getting into this rebuild that they did and getting the team back into the playoffs um i led the team to their first 50 win season in a long time yep in the playoffs unfortunately they ran into the warriors i Mm -hmm. believe and they were getting really good at that point so Fell to them, but it definitely helped having him to lead the team back to the playoffs. But do you remember what he looked like when the Jazz got him from Butler? Oh, yeah. He had that mop on his head. Looked like he was 14 years old. Mm hmm. Maybe a buck 50 soaking wet. Yeah. And then what, what did he look like when he left the Jazz? Had his nice hair that his wife probably combed. And cut. Mm-hmm. He was built. Oh yeah. He put on a lot of muscle. Yeah. You know he's, you know, a lot like Carl uh, Malone, where he worked himself into being an all-star type player. Um, I think without that type of work ethic, if he would have just stayed within the system and kept playing, he would have been a decent player. But by the time he left the Jazz, he was an all-star. And earned himself a max contract um, because of that. Yeah, I think the coolest thing about that was 
every single year he played with the Jazz, his points per game went up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He turned into a very, very good good player. Yeah, just <clears throat> was never content with the level he was playing at. Yeah. So next I want to talk about a guy that's with the team now. Um, that's a huge fan favorite. Even has his own morning radio shows, um, I think, every Monday. Um, that's Slow Mo Joe, Joe Ingles. Jingling Joe. Yeah. Um, the craziest thing to me about Joe, if you look at where he is now, is the fact that he had been playing in Australia, Israel, Europe, all over the world. Got picked up by the Clippers then got waived by them and the jazz picked him up as this uh how old was he then 26 27 yeah, 26 or 27 yeah so a guy that should already be in his prime they pick him up as just a let's see what you got type guy um and then you see where he is now i mean i you think know. everybody's favorite um moment is when they met the thunder in the playoffs and he shut down paul george Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a Paul George stopper. Yeah. You know, it's funny because he's, he's Australian, and, you know, when you think of uh, foreign players, you think of them not talking much, not being comfortable, but he is one of the biggest trash talkers the Jazz have ever had. Huge trash talker, and he's a comedian with the reporters and the media. Yeah, he seems like he's very... Very comfortable with the starlight, but doesn't go looking for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of, another one of the things I like about Joe is um, there's his second year in the with the team. Um, Dennis Lindsay, Quinn Snyder, they all brought him on in, and they told him, you're going to be the fifth wing on this roster. Um, you're going to be fighting just to see the court, because he was behind at the time. Gordon Hayward, Rodney Hood, Alec Burks, and... Um, I'm blanking on who the other guy was. Uh, I can't quite remember. But anyway, he was behind four other guys. Eventually some injuries happened. He got some time with the starting group, and he earned the job, and he kept it, and he's kept it all this time. And, you know, they eventually tried him out on the bench. Didn't work out great, so they put him right back up with the starters, um, which is crazy for a kid from... Australia that barely made it into the NBA in the first place. Yeah. And he's in his 30s now, but yeah. his style of play isn't reliant on him being a young, super athletic player. Mm -hmm. He's very, very smart, and he can shoot very, very well. So I think his game will age very well. And he crossed people up. Yeah. Not an athlete at all, and he's put people on his butt, on their butt. Yeah, he has. You don't even see it coming, and all of a sudden they're just flopping away. The greatest part about that is he'll do that, give them a big old smile, and then start trash and talk, talking to them on their way down the court. Yeah. And it's not normal trash talk. It's, dude, why did you let that happen? I'm white and slow <laughs> as no, no other. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So... Next two guys we're going to talk about is guys, legendary jazz guys that have had their numbers retired with the jazz. Um, first is Adrian Dantley. Um, this guy, when you hear his stats, it's just insane that he's not talked about more often. But 
in his uh, seven years with the Jazz, 29.6 points per game, seven rebounds, four assists, six-time All-Star, two-time All-NBA, and led the NBA in scoring in two different seasons. Yeah. Not many people know about him. I The first time, me being even a Jazz fan, the first time I ever really knew his name was when he took over the coaching job for the Nuggets Yeah. for a short time. And I learned his name, and I was like, he was on the Jazz? He was... <laughs> Extremely good. Yeah. Yeah, he, you know, he unfortunately was with the team at a time where, you know, when they were first in Utah, they just weren't very popular. And so yeah. his his games, if they were shown on TV, they were tape delay. Um, they were hardly ever shown. He would play in, like, the Salt Palace. Um, so I think if he was in the NBA now doing the kind of stuff he does, you know, he'd be talked about as an MVP candidate, mm-hmm. at least an all-NBA guy every single year. Yeah. Yeah, very not, he's just not talked about enough. Yeah. And another guy that I don't think is talked about enough with the Jazz is Daryl Griffith, a.k.a. Dr. Duncanstein. Um, you know, Daryl was one of the first guys to play with the Jazz in the three-point uh, era. They had added the three-point line. He was one of the very first to start taking them a lot. And he was a super athlete. could get to the rim and dunk it. Um, in his time with the Jazz, he, um, he averaged 16 points a game for his career with the Jazz. But before he had this awful foot injury, he was averaging 21 points a game. And then after that, um, he fell off, lost a lot of his athleticism, had to retire early. Um... But in that time that he was a great player, he was Rookie of the Year in 1981, and he is fifth all-time in Jazz history for three-pointers made. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Because there's been quite a few pretty good shooters for the Jazz in throughout their history. Mm-hmm. Some of them came before the three-point line, but yeah all time for them yeah. plus he's the one and only reason Kevin Durant will never sign with the Jazz oh yeah yeah because they retired his number number 35 oh yeah <laughs> that's right I mean I'm sure there's other reasons but <laughs> that's the only reason that can be the only reason <laughs> we don't want Kevin Durant <laughs> I mean we'll take him if he wants to come but <laughs> So the next guy I want to talk about is a guy that was with the team uh, when they went to the finals in 97 and 98, um, who, when I was a kid, I thought he had a lot bigger impact than he actually did. He was more just a great role player, but that's Brian Russell. Um, Brian Russell, in his time with the Jazz, averaged nine points, four rebounds, shot 37% from three. Um, but he did have four seasons where he shot over, or where he scored over double digits, and three seasons where he shot over forty percent from three. Um, but Brian Russell, his main contribution to the Jazz was guarding the other team's best perimeter player. Kind of like what Royce O'Neal is right now. Mm-hmm. That's exactly who I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for Brian, 
the play that he's most famous for <laughs> is the Michael Jordan push-off. Yeah, whether that be a foul or not a foul, yeah. it happened. Yeah, it's, it's up for debate, but... Um, it was a foul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But unfortunately, that's what he's best known for. But he was a very solid role player. Um, he took a lot of pressure off of Stockton and Carl Malone. Um, mostly because of his floor spacing that he could do and the fact that he could cover the best perimeter players. Because yeah. it allowed John Stockton to ball hawk a little bit and allowed them to hide Jeff Hornacek on the defensive end a bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, next guy is... This is probably one of the first guys that you saw with Jazz is Andre Karolinko. Oh, yeah. Drafted him from Russia, old AK-47. Mm-hmm. The first cool nickname I ever heard. Mm-hmm. He was a one-time All-Star, three-time All-Defense, and he was the, the blocks champ. So he averaged the most blocks that season in 2004, 2005. And he was a six foot nine small forward for most of his career. He played power forward later on, but... Yeah. Um, Had that sweet, spiky hair. Yeah. That's the big thing I remember is just seeing everybody run down the court and you see this guy just with spiked hair up running down the court and then blocking somebody or dunking the ball over somebody. Yeah. And every time I watch Andre Karolinko highlights, I think this guy got to the league 10 years too early because he would be a superstar now. Yes. Um, with his ability to handle the ball at six foot nine, hit the three, block shots, um, do everything on the defensive end. I mean, listen to the stat line with the Jazz. I mean, none none of these numbers on his own, on their own are insane. But if you put them all together, it's an incredible player. So he averaged twelve points per game, five and a half rebounds, three assists, one and a half steals, and two blocks in ten seasons with the Jazz. Yeah, that's a complete player. I mean, if that player, a player like this was available in the draft right now, like in the 2020 draft, everybody would be tanking to try and get a player like that. Yeah. So you can grow grow him into more of a scorer. Mm-hmm. But getting all those skills in one, it's more rare than a lot of people think. Yeah. Because... You see players like LeBron or Giannis now or Kevin Durant. That's three guys out of the whole league mm-hmm. that can do all that. It doesn't come around that often. Yeah. And then last guy in the small forwards that I wanted to talk about, and this is a guy that Andre played with for quite a few years. Um a lot like Brian Russell, not a huge piece, but a great role player, is Matt Harpering. Uh, Matt Harpering, the Jazz got them, got him in a trade with the Philadelphia 76ers and immediately came over and was a fan favorite, mostly because of the fact that he looks like a missionary. Yes, yes he does. He's six foot seven, big body, but if he was six feet tall, you put him in a suit, you think he's going to come knock your door. Yeah. <clears throat> But in his time with the Jazz, Matt Harpering averaged 12 points and 5 rebounds in his 7 seasons and was a big part of the 2008 Conference Finals team. And now he is a TV analyst for him. 
Yeah, he does a good job at that. Yeah, he does a very good job with Kohler Jack. Yeah, another one of these guys, like Thurl Bailey, where he wasn't from Utah, came to Utah later in his career, but he found a home here and has stayed. Yeah, and people in Utah love him. Oh, yeah. Everybody knows his name. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and move on into the shooting guard section. Um, with the Jazz, they're more centered around their front court within their history. So there's less players to talk about in the back court, but the players that we do have to talk about were absolutely amazing. Um, first one I want to talk about is Jeff Malone. Um, Jeff, in his time with the Jazz, he only played 13 seasons with that, or three seasons, my bad. <laughs> but in his three seasons with the Jazz, he averaged 19 points a game and was a two-time All-Star. Um, he played most of the beginning of his career with the uh Washington Wizards or Washington Bullets at that time uh, but by the time the Jazz got him uh, he was a great guy to bring off the bench bring a lot of energy put up a lot of points but the biggest con contribution he made to the Jazz was being an excellent trade piece um, he was who the Jazz traded to Philadelphia to get till now I mean, we'll see what Donovan Mitchell does, but till this point, the best shooting guard the Jazz have ever had in Jeff Hornacek, um, which at that time, 76ers were trying to trade Hornacek, and they were asking all around the league for trade packages. The Jazz offered Jeff Malone, and they're like, nah, we, we can do better. A month later, the 76ers were uh, desperate to, to get off of Hornacek's contract, and they got, got a hold of the Jazz again. They're like, hey, uh, will you will you give us Jeff Malone for him again? And then Hornacek led us, helped lead us to some finals appearances. Yeah. And he, you know, he was another guy that was about the same age as Carl Malone and John Stockton. He wasn't a young guy either, um, but he played seven years with the team. Um, in that time, averaged fourteen points, four assists, and three rebounds. But what? more crazy is his shooting stats um, and in his time with the Jazz he shot 49.4 percent from the field 42.8 percent from three and 89.7 percent from the free throw line that's getting close to like Steph Curry numbers yeah that's close to best shooter of all time numbers yeah um, plus he could handle the ball in the pick and roll and take pressure off of John Stockton I think adding him really helped push the Jazz over the first, second round hump. Yeah, I think I think that was the catalyst to, to get them into conference finals and then into the finals. Yeah. Um, and then with that, we'll go ahead and move into the last shooting guard um, that we're going to talk about with the Jazz. And that's a guy that's with the team now. And for the most part, I haven't talked too much about guys that weren't there for a long time. But I, I have a feeling that this guy's going to be here for a while. That's Donovan Mitchell. Um, right, right now, currently in his third year in the league. Was uh, second place in Rookie of the Year voting. Um, should have been Rookie of the Year. Definitely. Because Ben Simmons wasn't really a rookie. That, and I think Donovan Mitchell had a better year still. Yeah. And a more impressive team-leading year. Yeah, and if you look at where they are, they are now, 
Donovan Mitchell has a much bigger effect on the court than Ben Simmons does. Oh, for sure. But even though he didn't win the Rookie of the Year, um, he was able to lead the Jazz to the playoffs, and he was slam dunk champion that year. Yeah, and did his uh, Vince Carter tribute, and then... Daryl Griffith. Daryl Griffith. Yeah. Doctor Duncanstein. Yeah. Yeah. This this kid is super exciting. Um, again, I think he's going to be a great start for the Jazz for a long time. But in just two and about a quarter seasons with the Jazz right now, he's averaging twenty-two and a half points, four rebounds, four assists, and one and a half steals, and he keeps getting better each year. Yeah, he started out this season very very well. Can't remember exactly how many points he's averaging, but uh, a little over twenty-five. I think it's like twenty-five point two or something like that. Yeah, that's that's a star yeah. in the making right there. And each year, his shooting efficiency keeps getting better. Yeah. Um, I think as he gets older, he'll figure out his shooting map a little better. Stop taking so many floaters, shoot more threes. But he's definitely a star in the making. I think one of the biggest impacts he's had for the Jazz, though, is putting them on the media map. Yeah. Because everybody, he's a very, very exciting player to watch. Everybody loves him. So people want to come play for the Jazz now mm-hmm. just because he's there. Yeah, and he's you know, he's a great guy in the community as well. Yeah. You know, you'll, you'll hear these stories of him going and doing stuff, but he do, he's not the one that posts it. Um, it's always other people that see him doing this great stuff because um, he doesn't want the attention for it. He's just just a good guy. Yeah, that's just the way he is. He yeah. wants to help people out. Yeah, so I'm I'm very excited that he's a part of the Jazz. Me too, and I'm very excited to try out my new Purple Mountain Don Issue 1 shoes. Hey, me too. <laughs> that's another thing, just show you how great of a guy he is. Most NBA players, if you get Kobe's, you get LeBron's shoes, you get whoever, you're paying 200-something bucks for those. But Donovan Mitchell told Adidas, I want these things to be $100 so my fans can actually afford them. Yeah. And they're nice shoes. Yeah, they they didn't skimp on quality to make it cheaper. Yeah. So then with that, we'll go ahead and move on into the last position, which is the point guards. And... We'll talk about who I think is the greatest point guard of all time. My favorite player of all time. John Stockton. Mm-hmm. Short shorts and all. Yep. Short shorts, hairy legs, <laughs> quick, strong, and just fun to watch. Yeah. Also got to add, six foot tall, 160 pounds, white, mm-hmm. and not a super athlete. Um, just, he took the, the tools that he did have and maximized them. For sure. But, um, John Stockton is the all-time leader in assists and steals for a career, and it's not even close. Nowhere near is the second place. He's at 15,806 assists. Closest place is a little over 12,000. He's... Next- after that is just over 10,000 I think isn't it yep and then he uh, got 3,265 steals in his career 
Next closest is about 2,200, and that player's retired. So is the guy with uh, 12,000 assists. That's Jason Kidd. He's retired as well. Yeah. Pretty incredible there. I don't think those numbers will ever be touched because we were talking about this the other night. Um, to do what John Stockton has done in his career, you have to average 10 assists or more a game for your career for 19 seasons and play every single game. Mm-hmm. You can miss a couple here and there in those 19 years, but that's what you have to do to get up to him in assists. And you have to do the exact same thing with steals and get two steals a game for that long of time. Yeah. Staying healthy that long, staying that good that long, is just absolutely incredible. He was an Iron Man. Yeah. He's hardly ever injured, hardly ever missed any games. Always very, very consistent. Led the league in assists for, what, nine, nine years? Seasons. Holy cow. And it was always 12-plus assists in those years. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the other stuff that we got to mention with him is he, do, he did get attention for what he was doing with the Jazz. Even though Utah was not on the map, the league, he was doing so great that the league had to respect the guy. Yeah. He was a 10-time All-Star, 11-time All-NBA, and he was a two-time member of Team USA in the Olympics. Part of the dream team with Carl Malone, too. Yep. Yeah. Just an absolutely incredible player. And now in the Hall of Fame. Yep. The next guy we'll talk about is a guy that... Um, there's mixed emotions around him in Utah, but in his time in Utah was a great player, and that's Darren Williams. Yeah, I remember watching him, and it was always everybody like everybody on ESPN or anywhere else was always talking about either him or Chris Paul being the best point guard in the league mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah, the guy he was he was a guy that he didn't look like he was a super athlete because he's a bit bigger in the shoulders, not super muscular or anything like that, but. Um, knew how to get the job done, knew where to position his body, um, knew how to get to his spots and be effective on the court. Yeah. Um, in his six years with the Jazz, he averaged 17 points and nine assists, was a three-time All-Star and two-time All-NBA, and was a driving force in them getting to the 2008 Conference Finals. Um, unfortunately for Darren, he is also a big part of controversy with the Jazz. Um, he eventually was traded away and was a big part of um, the great Jerry Sloan retiring. Mm-hmm. Um, but since, Darren Williams has come back to Utah, um, has apologized to Jerry Sloan, and has tried to be a part of the Jazz and you know make up for the mistakes he made when he was younger. Yeah. And he, uh, he helped the Jazz in the playoffs quite a bit. Yeah. And pretty big part of my history is watching the jazz mm-hmm. so i tend to like him <laughs> yeah. and the last guy we're going to talk about in the point guard section is probably the creator of fancy ball handling and passing that's pete maravich yeah. pistol pete i did a middle school no elementary school research paper on him 
pretty fascinating to learn a lot about him. Yeah. Is there anything that's not popular knowledge that you know that you want to share? Uh, I have a little story with him and his dad that he that's in like a biography about him. All right. Um, there was one time. This was without his dad, but it was raining really, really hard outside, and he said he went out and he dribbled the basketball, did all his moves, and an inch of rain, and he was like, if I can dribble like this in an inch of rain, what can I do on a dry court, a nice court? Then the story with him and his dad was his dad would drive down the highway and roll down the window of the car and have Pete dribble the ball while they're going down the road. I don't know how fast they were going, probably not extremely fast, but yeah. you'd have to keep up dribbling mm -hmm. with the car. That's a pretty cool story, I thought. <laughs> yeah. You know, and a lot of the drills that he came up with, you know, he did a video with Red Auerbach, who is the coach for the Celtics for a long time. Mm -hmm. He did a video showing some of his dribbling drills. And if you go to um, college games, high school games, even NBA games, in their warm-ups, a lot of the best dribblers in the NBA are doing his drills still. Yeah, and he has a couple of DVDs of his moves, his warm-up moves and different tricks that he had. Mm-hmm. The one I exciting the one i always liked the most that he would do is he would hold the ball in front of him bounce it between his legs catch it behind his back bounce it back the other way between his legs and catch it in front yeah. but he, he's doing two hands the whole time um, my, i think my favorite video i've seen of him is showing a move but it's a two-on-one transition and no three-on-one transition and he goes to he motions a pass and looks straight at one guy, but then he flicks his wrist and throws the ball to the other guy, so the defender's just sitting there. Where's the ball? Mm -hmm. yeah. He had a lot of tricks up his sleeve. Yeah, but you know, the guy wasn't just all tricks. He was a great player, too. Yeah. Probably the greatest scorer in college history. Averaged 44 points a game in his time in college. That's insane. With no three-point line. Without a three-point line. And it's not like he just scored around the basket because there wasn't a three-point line. He was shooting well behind where the three-point line would be now. Yep. That reminds me of also in that book that I read. He played with the high schoolers when he was in middle school, like on the teams. And he would just huck up shots from 35, 40 feet. And he was the best player out there against varsity high school teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, just incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. If he had a three-point line throughout his career, he had it one year, 1980, when he was with the Celtics. And he was all injured and out of shape. And mm hmm If he would have had a three-point line his whole career, he would probably be one of the greatest players of all time. Yeah. You know, he played with the Hawks before he got to the Jazz. Um, eventually had a horrible knee injury that cut his career short. Yeah. But in his six years with the Jazz, 
He averaged 25 points, 4 rebounds, and 5.5 assists. Um, that's just, those are incredible stats. Yeah. Um, especially for a guy that's no longer at his at his peak. Starting to tail off, starting to get injuries mounting up on him. Yeah, definitely. Right. I, I think it'd be extremely cool to see, just to see like what he could have done in a more modern era of the NBA. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we're running out of time in this segment. We'll record just one more segment real quick and talk about the jazz coaches. All right, so we'll move into the second segment of this podcast. Um, we're going to go ahead and talk about the jazz coaches. Um, in their history, especially in the time that they've been in Utah, they've really only had three coaches in that long period of time. Now, there was a coach between Jerry Sloan and Quinn Snyder, Tyrone Corbin, but we don't really need to get into that. Um, he just wasn't a fit at the time. Um, but we'll go ahead and talk about Frank Layden. Um, Frank was actually coaching um, he coached high school ball in New York and then eventually got a college job. And a friend of his was like, hey, you want to come coach this professional basketball team that just moved to Utah? Um, so he goes to the Jazz, and like I said before, they had a hard time staying in Utah. Um, they just weren't very popular. They weren't getting many people to their games. So Frank would go around the town um, before games, hand out free tickets. He would give talks at schools and at businesses saying like, hey, there's a team in this state. Just so you know, um, we play basketball. You might want to come see it. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was a like a door-to-door salesman for the Jazz. Yeah, um, you know Frank in his coaching career didn't have tons of success, um, but the biggest uh, successes he had in his career were being a big help to the Jazz, um, getting them popular in Utah, helping them stay in Utah, and after he stepped down as coach and Jerry Sloan took over, um, <clears throat> Frank stepped into the front office. Um, brought in a young man named uh, Dave Checkets, who I think was 27 at the time, to be president of the Jazz. 27-year-old who had no experience with the NBA. He was a lawyer. Brought him in. He was president and CFO. Um, helped get the Jazz going. And then found a local businessman named Larry H. Miller. Convinced him to buy half the team, um, which he did, which helped a lot. Larry loved being around the Jazz so much that he eventually bought the entire team and finally built them an arena in Salt Lake City. Um, so Frank, even though he was a good coach, his biggest contributions were um, making the Jazz what they are now. Helping um, them to be relevant in Utah. Yeah, I really don't think there's a Utah Jazz now without Frank Layden. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, like I said, he's the one that decided to draft both Stockton and Malone. Um, he's the guy that took a big chance on a guy like Mark Eaton, who was old at the time because he had spent time as a mechanic, then decided to go to college and play basketball. Could you imagine a seven foot four mechanic? Yeah. <laughs> but he went to junior college, was really good there, went to UCLA, never played. So nobody knew about him. They just knew he was seven foot four. Frank Layden took a chance and turned him into a star. Um, 
And now, you know, Frank is still doing stuff for the Jazz here and there. Um, he's no longer in a full-time capacity. Um, but his son, he mentored his son, taught him how to do front office stuff, and now he's a front office member with the Minnesota Timberwolves and has been for quite a few years. Oh, yeah. Is that Scott? Yep, Scott, Scott Layden. Yeah. So after Frank decided to step down, um, he had a, a young coach on his coaching staff, an assistant named Jerry Sloan. Um, I think everybody that has ever heard of the Jazz probably knows that name. Yeah. Um, I just thought of a story real quick. Um, when we're done with this, remind me to go back to it and tell a Frank Layden story because it's actually pretty funny. Um, but Jerry Sloan um, coached the Jazz for over 20 years, led the Jazz to 20 straight playoff appearances, won 1,221 games as head coach of the Jazz, led them to the finals in 1997 and 1998, has the fourth most wins of any coach in NBA history, and the second most wins with one team in NBA history. The only person beating him is, is uh, Popovich, Greg Popovich. Um, but other than that, he is the second winningest coach with one team in, in NBA history. Terry Sloan was the original Greg Popovich. Yeah. Leading a team to that many consecutive playoff appearances. That's not easy to do. Yeah. And one of the things, one of the reasons that Frank stepped down, he was tired of coaching, but he wasn't the right guy to coach Carl Malone. Carl Malone, as I was talking about before, very prideful. Um, he's very aggressive sometimes, and he needs somebody that's um, tough. Very tough, yeah, that's the right word for it. And that's what Jerry Sloan was. I mean, he's shown emotional moments, moments before. But if you watch their games, there were no emotional moments from him. Yeah. He, he was on top of every single player. It didn't matter how big of a star you were or if you're the guy that got 30 seconds in a game. He was going to be tough on you no matter what. And that was perfect for a guy like Carl Malone. Yeah. I think it's great for a whole team no matter what. Yeah. Somebody that's that focused on everything. Yeah. I, I consider Jerry Sloan... Um, probably be the greatest coach of all time I think um, you could make an argument for Popovich for Phil Jackson for Pat Riley guys like that um, Lenny Wilkins as well but what Jerry Sloan was able to do with the lack of talent he had there um, with being in a city that didn't draw big free agents just an absolutely impressive career oh yeah he's definitely up there with the top coaches all time mm-hmm and just a very iconic look just that little not really a scowl look yeah but just tough tough look on the sideline yeah the last coach we'll talk about is another coach with a great angry look on the sideline <laughs> that's quinn snyder who's currently the coach of the jazz um quinn when he first got in um was part of uh, this rebuild that Dennis Lindsay started with the Jazz. Um, they had just let Paul Millsap and Al Jefferson go. They had a bunch of young guys. They were looking for a direction. And Quinn was a perfect fit for that. He's done a great job with it, too. 
uh, helped lead the Jazz now to three consecutive playoff appearances. Mm-hmm. Two of them 50 win teams. Yeah. Two times second round, I think. Yeah. And I think Quinn's greatest uh, attribute that he brought to the Jazz is his ability to develop players. Um, Rudy Gobert, late first round pick. Um, Quinn Snyder, or, sorry, Joe Ingles, <laughs> undrafted 26 year old rookie. Royce O'Neal, undrafted. Playing over in Europe, nobody had an, even an idea that he existed. Now he's, he's a nor, uh, normal rotation player for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's taken younger, younger guys, too, and helped them develop. I mean, Donovan Mitchell in his rookie year, you'd see him add stuff every game. Yep. It wasn't like 30 games later, oh, he's gotten better at this. It's this next game, oh, he knows how to do that now. Yeah, you'd see him one game, you'd see him struggle with something. Next game, he's adapting to it. Yeah. You know, and he only had a losing record one season so far as the Jazz, and that was taking over a rebuild. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, they've been winning seasons, and he's led them to the playoffs in three consecutive seasons, probably going to be four this year. Yeah. Um, led them to the second round of the playoffs in two of those years. Um, so just... One of the few guys in the NBA that can take a low level of talent and make them overachieve rather than, you know, these teams that have just incredible talent and they do as good as they're supposed to or underachieve. Yeah. And he has got the meanest mad look oh, yeah. I've ever seen. It's just such a grumpy face. Mm-hmm. If I were a player, I would not ever want to see that face. <laughs> one of my favorite memories of Quinn Snyder is I don't remember who they're playing but they're like four minutes into the game they weren't very long into the game but the Jazz were looking a little sluggish and you could hear him from the sideline he doesn't have a mic on him but you could hear wake up mm-hmm. wake up yeah there's <laughs> video of that he's flailing his arms around yeah he's not going to take crap from people either yeah and he doesn't he wants to be the best team he doesn't want to be anything less yeah he doesn't accept anything less yeah along with that you know I I worry for the guy because he's such a workaholic you can tell that the guy is sleep deprived that he spends way more time than any other coach on his team yeah and uh, having new players this year, a few of them, especially Mike Conley, he's, they all say, this guy has got so many different schemes to learn, and it's just way more in-depth than any other coach they've ever had. Yeah. You know, the NBA only allows two weeks for training camp now, Yeah, but to learn Quinn's uh, system, you need at least a month. Yeah. There's just so much, so many small details to it. Um, some of his plays, they look real basic, but if you really watch all the games, every single time they run the play, there's like 12 different things that could happen with each play that they run. Yeah. And that's why our teams tend to do better in the second half of the season. Yeah. Because everybody starts to learn everything and get comfortable with it. And they can excel with it. 
Yeah. I mean, all his his schemes give the players so many choices. Mm-hmm. So many different options and puts them in the right places. Yeah. To succeed. Yeah. All right. So with that, we'll go ahead and end um, what we've been doing. This kind of analysis of the players. You, oh, you had the story, Frank Layden. That's right. I had a Frank Layden story. Um, so when Frank was the coach, you know, the team was struggling. They just didn't have a, a lot of talent. And they had just gotten off of a road trip and they lost like three games in a row, I think. And Larry H. Miller, who was the owner at the time, hadn't had much experience as an owner. So he thought he knew way more about basketball than he really did. Mm-hmm. He called up the assistant coach um, at the time, who was uh, Jackson. What's his name? Johnson. Phil Johnson. Um, and he says, I want you to go up to um, Frank Layden and tell him he's relieved of the team right now. And No, he called Dave Checkets. That's who he called. And he t- so he tells him to let, and Dave says, okay, do you want me to make Jerry the coach then? He goes, no, I'm going to take over the team. <laughs> and he says, what? What are you talking about? He goes, "He goes, I'm going to take over this team. I'm going to turn him into a winner. <laughs> but fortunately, the rule, the NBA has this rule called the Turner Rule, uh, which is named after, um, can't think of his first name, but uh, Turner, who was the co- the owner of the Hawks, super, super rich guy. He's the owner of uh, Turner Media, which is mm-hmm. all Atlanta. Um, he had tried to take over as coach of the Hawks and just did an awful, awful job. And so the NBA was like, all right, no more owners as coaches. So Larry H. Miller couldn't be the coach that time. <laughs> but So Frank Layden got to still be coach. But I, I always think that story is just so funny. Yeah, ah, three games. I'm taking over. Yeah. <laughs> well, plus, Frank and Larry Larry just didn't get along very well with each other. Yeah. But, you know, it's a good thing that he didn't fire him because then he stayed around and he helped the team out. Mm-hmm. But, but, yeah, thank you for reminding me about that. Yeah. But we'll go ahead and end um, this analysis of the players and the coaches. We'll do one more segment with our little sister, Gabby. We'll talk about... Um, jerseys that the Jazz have worn over time. and Sweet, sweet jerseys. And then we'll end this super long episode. <laughs> and thanks for listening. Go Jazz! Alright, for this last segment, we're joined by another special guest, our little sister, Gabby, as we talk about Jazz jerseys through their the Jazz's history. Welcome in, Gabby. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> if you could uh, put your mouth a little closer to the mic and speak up, that'd be great. Mm. All right, so uh, when we look at the Jazz, they started off in New Orleans, as we talked about earlier, uh, moved into Utah, and they had basically the same jersey at that time. Uh, Preston, those are the Pete Maravich days. Can you describe those jerseys for us a little bit? Those, the, just the, like the purple and yellow ones. Yeah, kind of a, kind of a off-white color. Yeah. Yeah. Those were kind of interesting. And they kept those jerseys through most of the John Stockton, Carl Malone era as well. Um, and then they moved into the mountain jerseys. Um, do you remember those jerseys, Gabby? They're actually Just playing the, with them this season, the purple ones at least. Yeah. What do you want me to say about them? Well, what, what do you remember about them? Do you have any jazz memories? Do you remember um, seeing any games with them wearing them? Whether it be 
back when uh, there were their normal jerseys or this season? No. No? (laughs) (laughs) All I remember is that Preston has one of them. John Stockton Uh, jersey? Yeah. Well, even though those, you know, the the Coral Malone, Sucta Malone teams made it to the finals very late in their history. Um, Stockton and Malone were, were pretty old at that time. Those are the jerseys they're most remembered in. They're very iconic. Um, you know, anytime you see any of the Bulls Jazz uh, highlights from that time period, those are the jerseys they were wearing at that time. Um, yeah. So then we move in to my favorite jerseys from that time period, kind of the Darren Williams, Carlos Boozer era jerseys. Um, Gabby, do you remember those at all? Are they just the white and like blue ones? Yeah. Just like they had their away jerseys were dark blue, and then they had their alternate light blue, which mm-hmm. was a yeah. pretty cool color. Yeah, that those they had their alternate. There was the powder blue. Those are my favorite jerseys from any team all time. Um, my favorites are definitely the the original mountains. Yeah. With the purple. And what's cool about the, you know, both those different jerseys, they were very successful in those times. In the mountain jerseys, they made it to the finals two times. And in the uh, the white and blue ones, they made it to the uh, conference finals uh, with Darren Williams, Carlos Boozer, Andre Karolinko, that whole team. Yeah. Um, so that moves us into... Uh, what they wear nowadays. Um, it's kind of a, hum- a homage to uh, what they came over uh, from New Orleans wearing, but it's m- a lot more uh, modern. Yeah. Um, they add quite a few more nice touches to it to make mm-hmm. them seem a little bit more interesting. Yeah. But still classic jazz look. What what jersey from this era do you like, Gabby? Um, I like their sunset ones. The city jerseys. Yeah, the city jerseys. jerseys. But I like the mountain ones too. Yeah. Both of those, I like the fact that they they bring back or they bring in different courts for those as well. When they play in the mountain jerseys, it's the old court that I remember seeing as a kid when Stockton Malone were still playing, and then. The city jerseys, they pull in, you know, the arches from southern Utah. Um, I always love playing 2K with the city jerseys yeah. and the mountain jerseys, but the city jerseys court, it's really cool. So are the city jerseys your your favorite, Gabby, or is there another jazz jersey that is your favorite of all time? Um, I think... Probably the city jerseys. Yeah. What about you, Preston? What's your favorite jersey of all time? All time. Probably the Purple Mountains. Yeah. But I do really like the uh, the city jerseys. I like the gold ones too, but those are... I don't think they should be all the time jersey. Just every now and then. Mm-hmm. But I do like it. It's just kind of just a mix-up. with the colors great well i want to thank both of you for hopping on to the podcast today thanks for having us yeah thank you and uh if you want to follow this podcast you can go on instagram at wasatch basketball pod you can email me at wasatch basketball pod at gmail.com thank you for listening bye